Welcome to First Mile's Climate Heroes. I'm your host, Bruce Bratley, founder of recycling company First Mile. On this show, we meet and learn from the climate heroes who are building solutions right now to tackle climate change. We all have phones in our pockets, laptops on our desks, and you will have downloaded this episode from a data center packed with IT equipment. Tech is full of precious resources that we need to keep in a circular economy. But are we doing enough to ensure IT is used responsibly to minimize its impact? In this episode, we'll meet Anthony Levy, founder of Circularity First, which helps businesses build circular IT systems, and its company has prevented millions of kilos of hardware ending up as e-waste. Anthony, welcome to First Mile's Climate Heroes. Fantastic. Thank you, Bruce. It's a pleasure to be here. Kicking off, what does Circularity First do and what's the problem? Why should we care about e-waste? Great question, Bruce. Uh, Let's start with that question first. So we're all aware that we need to become more sustainable in general. But I think what we don't typically know is how integrated all these things are. So when we think about the phone in our hands, we can't immediately connect to where are the impacts from that phone. You know, it doesn't take an awful lot of electricity. I only plug a little bit of energy in each day. Where's the impact? So I think the big problem is understanding where all the impacts come from everything that we consume, but particularly in IT, it's just how much heavy industry has to happen, mining, extraction, manufacturing, everything to create these devices that we use each day. There's huge impacts that we don't see. So the problem is that our appetite for new technology is such that it's creating huge environmental impacts that we don't really know about. So we need to learn about it and then we need to work out how to reduce that impact. Circularity First really is an organization that only helps create that awareness, help people understand where all the impacts are in IT, but fundamentally helps people understand how they can reduce that impact. And we offer solutions and services to, to, to help with that reduction. So I think it's a very good starting point to say, you know, you plug your mobile phone in or your laptop and it hardly uses any power. A little green or red light comes on and it all looks quite benign. But, you know, and if you talk about that in terms of scope one emissions, why worry about it? But actually, if you look at the embedded carbon in that machine, um, which is your scope three emissions, there's a huge amount going into that. And also some of the processing and the heavy lifting that happens behind your phone or your laptop, mainly in the cloud, is both equipment intense with lots of kit in it, but also energy intense. Because I think a data center, its main sort of energy intensity is around keeping it cool with all those uh, servers running. So is your interest in that sort of how do we how do we make the, the servicing side of things, the data center side of things more efficient? Or is it more around sort of the embedded carbon in the actual equipment? I guess... Our bigger focus probably is in the embedded part, which in in technology terms is typically much larger. So as society, I think we are, and we have been quite focused on, as you refer to, sort of scope one and two. So the the energy use in life of of, of technology, and not so much about that scope three, that whole supply chain, what it took to make it. But people often throw around around 70 to 75% of the overall impact is actually in that scope three, is that embedded carbon and the fact that we like to chew through devices we might use a phone for a couple of years and then throw it away or leave it in a drawer compounds that it's the fact that there's such a powerful marketing machine and new technologies coming out all the time and we feel we need the next one the next one the next one is really what makes that a really big scalable problem and what's in these devices then so i mean if you take the it's a humble laptop or a phone, and maybe they're made, made of the same stuff these days because they're all sort of solid state. I mean, what are the main things in there? Because we tend to see 
a plastic case, maybe some aluminium, um, which we understand. But then is it is it just got a load of gold in it? Is it ram full of rare earth metals? I mean, what's the, what, what's in there that's caught, that's creating this big sort of carbon footprint? I guess there's two things to think about. By volume, you've kind of named the big ones there. It's plastics, it's metals like steel or aluminium. Um, um, but by volume, the smallest bit is these rare metals and minerals. But actually, to, to extract those and to make the, those materials useful actually often can have an even bigger impact than, than, than the larger volume materials in a device. So visualize for me a forest. Uh, which are natural buffer to suck carbon back out of the atmosphere. Now, imagine hectares of that being cleared, and then tons and tons of soil being chemically processed with water and chemicals to extract the very, very small amounts of these metals and minerals we need in our devices. That impact from a carbon point of view, from a biodiversity point of view, from a water point of view is brutal. And, and you then you take that through the whole supply chain into manufacturing when more energy, more chemicals are needed. And then in transportation, moving the parts and the subcomponents and the combined products around the world before it gets into our hand, you start to get a little bit of an inkling of how much impact is in these devices. This is probably like so out of date now, you'll tell me, but I sort of had this thing I remembered that someone was telling me that... Uh, there's more gold in a ton of waste electronics than there is in a ton of gold ore. So we're sort of concentrating these metals into the sort of electronic equipment and then throwing it away, landfilling it, not reusing it. And it sort of seems to be, when you visualize a precious metal like gold, it seems crazy. It's a great example. And yes, that's changed a little bit from a, just a purely gold point of view, but the theory is still exactly the same. We've moved on from using as much gold in our technology, but there's just as much other metals and minerals that we are not using that do end up in waste. And the stats are quite staggering. So there's around 57 million tonnes of e-waste created each year. But only 17% of that is actually recycled. And what we need to understand is that recycling IT isn't very easy. I mean, think about the device in your hand. Think about your, your, your phone. I mean, I'm hopefully setting a good example. This is an iPhone 8. It's quite old. But these, this is made up of composite materials that are glued and soldered together in very small amounts. It's very difficult to recycle this in a meaningful way without it costing a huge amount of money. So really recycling in our world is typically what we call the last resort. Really recycling, we're not going to recycle our way out of this problem. Definitely not. So we'll come back to sort of solutions and circularity first in a second and sort of the recycling side of things versus reuse different business models. But before we do that, Anthony, I'm always at risk in this podcast of diving into the detail and then, and then ignoring my wonderful guests who've taken out the time to come on the show. How did you become a climate hero and what's the story of uh, starting up circularity first? So it's an interesting journey because I think a lot of things – start with necessity and then you have the luxury perhaps of, of scaling them and doing different ways so you know uh, as a kid uh, i live in a family of, uh, around the time when home computers were just becoming a thing probably telling my age a bit here uh, but candidly my family can afford to buy me my own personal computer and you know i really wanted my own computer for, for a lot of reasons but um what i realized was people have a strange relationship with technology you know after a couple of years they're willing to give or even throw it away so actually i built my own home computer from scratch when I was about 12 years old. And it wasn't that hard, right? I'm, I'm not talking, I didn't solder parts together, but you, you get, there were line cards, you stuck into the motherboard, you needed a hard disk, you needed a power supply, you needed a keyboard, mouse screen, all that kind of stuff, right? But I was able to build my own um, for, for next to nothing. 
And um, that's sowed a seed in my mind. And in fact, it got me into technology. It got me sort of writing programming languages so I could create, create my own games and stuff. Ultimately, it took me to university and, and beyond. So I studied computer science at university. I left university in 1998 um, with a computer science degree, which was great because when the internet bubble was, was, was blowing up. Uh, and even though I didn't actually know that much about the internet, you have to not assume that just someone knows about technology didn't know about the internet back then, um, it wasn't so hard to kind of start a career. What I realized quite quickly is you know, working for other people is obviously you're solving their problems. And most people are interested, um, the kind of companies I work for, in, in, in building business around different niches. I worked for a big telecommunications company at one point. Obviously, they had their goals. But I still had this sort of itch in the back of my head of, can't we be doing this more sustainably? And so then an opportunity arose. I came across um, a program that was being launched by one of the big IT vendors, a company called Cisco. And they were just starting to launch their own remanufactured equipment program. So they, yeah, this is 2008, so financial recession, and everyone thought I was nuts leaving a, a, a well-paid job on a decent career journey to, to start a business selling remanufactured technology. Um, I did get some strange looks for that, um, and, and, and I was doing it because I thought this was, makes a lot of sense from a sustainability point of view, but fortunately, at that time in the market, people really needed to save money, and we actually built a business largely through saving people money. It, well, the principles didn't start for them with sustainability. And it's only really been the last four or five years where we've got people there to, to be making that decision. And you also go by the moniker of the sustainable IT guy. And is that is that a lot of that work around the convincing people to trust remanufactured tech, working on hearts and minds, or is that something else? No, no, that, that is very much about that. And, and I think the hearts and minds is a good, good, good way of expressing it. I love my marketing team coming up for a moniker for me. Um, we have to hold a quite a careful line of convincing people, right? That we know in this in the whole journey around climate change, we haven't always got the messaging right. Global warming sounded like a good thing for a lot of people. I really believe Simon Sinek said, have you ever said Simon Sinek's words on this? He makes it made it sound attractive. Oh, particularly in the UK, oh, a bit warmer, yeah. One and a half degrees, that doesn't sound so bad. You know, when we're mixing up weather with climate, so when I speak as the sustainable IT guy, generally I'm talking a little bit more expansively. So I'm not normally pitching what we do as a business. I might be on a podcast or an event. I might be at an event on stage. And really what I'm trying to do is start that first bit, that awareness. So often what I'm really trying to do is help people become aware of where all these impacts are coming from and take them through that journey of maybe setting some ambition. So you know, what could you do to reduce it? And then helping them build all the way through accountability into action, take some action. So it's a lot about giving the knowledge and the experience that, we, that we've learned because we've gone through this journey ourselves as an organization uh, and sharing all that knowledge and that awareness and helping others hopefully feel confident to start the journey. First Mile is the UK's leading waste management service. We help over 30,000 businesses reduce their carbon impact with our award-winning range of recycling solutions. Go to our website, which is thefirstmile.com .co.uk to get started today. If you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe. We have brand new episodes every Wednesday. I just sort of want to put the recycling thing to bed, actually, because a true circular economy actually isn't about recycling. It's about keeping things in a circular economy, going round and round, repairing them, demanufacturing them, or as you said, not having them in the first place. So could you describe to to the listeners so some of the circular economies that we're starting to see now in the in the tech world and what good looks like yes uh, absolutely so got quite a few different examples we could talk about well, here's a really simple one but a real scale 
So in this country, we've just about a year ago, we launched two new aircraft carriers, right? It's taken a long time, but we've launched the Queen Elizabeth uh, uh, aircraft carrier. We've got these new aircraft carriers that we've launched, and it takes a long time to build an aircraft carrier. So when the technology was designed on one of these aircraft carriers, it's used, you know, they obviously put in the technology that's right at that moment when they're designing it. But four, five years later, when those aircraft carriers actually go to sea, sometimes that technology is no longer current. It's a difficult situation because, you, you know, the vendors understandably are saying, oh, you should really be on our next generation of technology. But, you know, British government has made certain investments and is expecting those investments to work. So we got involved in this project to help extend the life of the technology on the Queen Elizabeth. And it had seven data centers worth of technology on it. So it, it's not a trivial quantity of technology. And ultimately, what it boils down to is, like, understandably, a vendor ha- ha- keeps its products in life for a certain period of time. And they have this one lens of, well, we've moved on from that. But but what we have to challenge ourselves in society is that just because a vendor's moved on or someone's moved on doesn't mean that that technology doesn't work. It worked before. Well, it's not doesn't suddenly magically stop working at that moment when, when a vendor's end of sales it. So our job there was to really analyze everything they had in play and make sure we could get access to uh, enough technology to increase capacity where they needed capacity, add in a new functionality, but critically provide enough spares to keep that technology running for another minimum five years. Um, and that was perfectly possible. And actually, for, for nearly all technology, it, it is nearly always possible to at least double the kind of assumed practical life of something. You know, people talk about laptops easily being able to run for 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 eight, nine, ten years as opposed to the three or four that people talk about. Same with phones, same with other elements of technology. So our starting point typically with customers is around extending perhaps what they've already invested in because most people already have some kind of technological footprint. And they're often quite surprised when a, when a technology company turns up and goes, yeah, you don't need to replace that. You don't need to replace that. You don't need to replace that. They're expecting the opposite. They're like, okay, so how does this work? Um, so we often start there. You know, product life extension programs is, is getting a little bit better understood in, in this marketplace, uh, as is also the adoption of non-new technology. I think we've perhaps gone through peak peak excitement about new technology. I'm not saying there's still not massive excitement about new technology, but in terms of devices, I think people are a little bit less quick to to get the new phone. Yeah, 18 months after they got last. I think they're a little bit like, oh, do I really need another one now? Yeah, this one seems to be still working pretty well. But what we haven't seen change yet is the appetite around new new technology in general. So I think when we talk about software or solutions, like particularly things like AI, we definitely want the new shiny stuff. We definitely want to try AI. We definitely got to get our heads around that. And um, I think the knock-ons for that, again, are less visible. The impact on data center use. I think Microsoft, so someone did some analysis, I think Microsoft's demand for data center um, capacity increased between 25 and 30% based on the fact that they're accelerating their work on AI. That's quite a lot. Yeah, that is that is a lot. And for the listeners, everyone goes, oh, well, it's sort of it's used twenty five percent more of the time. But what does that actually mean for the hardware and the technology in the data centers? I mean, do they have that buffer, or is it someone going with a van and putting in more servers? Well, I mean, it's both basically. So, I mean, this is where people often think. Well, when we're talking about, so why are you talking about software when talking about sustainability in IT? Well, it's the software that determines what hardware it runs on right you that's a very clear linkage right we talked about hardware you've got to think about mining extraction manufacturing that that, when we think about it we can see the impact there so it defines what hardware goes in but it also defines how hard that hardware works so the more demanding that application the harder that device has to work the more energy it needs to do the computation so the cpus how much energy it's burning there but equally then how much energy you need to cool it down 
So, and of course, each device has a limitation. And to your point, as you add more demands to it, you have to add more hardware to, to extend it. And, and we've, and if we've gone through one change, which is not great, it's been this ability to look like you can just switch up compute power without having to worry about it. When I studied computer science at university, we had to be extremely aware of how complex the software was that we were writing and how much work it would make for, for processors because there was very limited computational power. And because of cloud, like cloud's not all bad, I'm not saying cloud's all evil, but cloud's sort of done this mirage effect of making us think like we don't have to write efficient code. We can write it in whatever programming language we like. You know, like, like Python, which is a great easy to use scripting language, might be 30, 40 times less efficient than writing in something like C++. Sound all geeky now, but these are programming languages. And just that choice, because we solve the same problem to get the same answer to the same question, might be 30 or 40 times less efficient. And all that has demand on the data centers. But equally, we've got to think about what are we using technology for? In the first kind of wave of the internet, we filled data centers up with cat videos. Now, don't get me wrong, love your cat video, but when it's stored on my phone and it's stored twice in the cloud, and then I forwarded it to you, so it's stored on your phone and it's stored twice in the cloud, and you multiply that by 7 billion people, you start to see why technology is such a big problem, and particularly software and data, because it's so scalable. It's so easy to disseminate. We all know you can send an email to 100 people. You know, Whatever you send them, everyone immediately has that, not only on their device, but in their cloud services. And, and that's why these problems are so big. And when we talk about AI, it's kind of the next version of cat videos. Forgive me. Like There will be some amazing use cases around AI, and there already are. We've got new antibiotics. We're, we'll probably help us solve some of the climate problems. But the energy it takes to train an AI, certainly in these large language models, and, and but equally um, using it is massively, massively consumptive. And we're not yet thinking, oh, do I ask that question to chat GPT? Is that a good use of the world's resources? We don't ask ourselves that question. We go, oh, I've got my homework, right. Write an essay on, right, and I get it, but we don't see the weight of these tools and the weight is considerable. Is anybody cleaning it up, sort of thinking we might actually be a good idea to delete some old files? Not enough. I mean, <laughs> we worry about a lot of things from a climate point of view, right? And at the moment, everyone's eyes really are on carbon. It's only one of the many things we need to worry about. But let's just think about carbon for a minute. All right, so IT as a whole. And when I talk about IT, we have to take into account data centers, the networks like the internet and all these other networks we connected to, and the devices and the software and the data that sits across them. So visualize all of that, right? But if we add all that up today, that's generating about 4% of our global emissions from a carbon point of view. So that sounds like a lot, sounds like a little, depends on your perspective. It's double aviation, and most of us think we should be flying less, right? But that's not the problem. It is a problem. The problem is how fast it's growing. It's actually the fastest growing waste and, and, and emissions stream. So by 2040, it's forecast it could be 14% of global emissions. 14, that's more than cement. And Which is huge. Combined. So, yeah, I mean, we're talking huge. And in our organizations, you know, most if you think about professional services, UK is very much professional services orientated. If you look at an organization's emissions, we're finding that professional services companies are falling in return 18 to 22% of their carbon footprint is in IT. Okay, so it's, it's got to be in the top five things that we address. So, so it is really significant and it is growing very, very fast. And we're not thinking about, to your point, these impacts enough. We, we, 
because we, the, the IT providers have made it so easy to, to, to adopt, whether it's the, the new device or the new software or, you know, I checked my Gmail email account I started when I left university because I think about this stuff a lot. hadn't thought about that, but I logged in and went, I've never charged, a, I've never been charged a penny for that email account. I had 15 gigs, 15 gigabytes of old emails just sat there. Like never done anything. Like just sitting there somewhere, that data is sitting in a server, on a server, in a data center, and all those emails that I've never wanted to look at again are immediately accessible to me. Three hundred sixty-five days a year, twenty-four-seven. The, the 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 drives are running, the fans are running. That beautiful air-conditioned, perfectly secure uh, environment, and I'm just left it there. Like you wouldn't leave, uh, leave all your other stuff unattended all over the place, would you? It's just this out of sight, out of mind element. So we've got to address that waste problem. We've got to stop thinking cloud is this light, fluffy thing. It's a heavy emitting thing that we all need to take responsibility for, um, particularly around data and software use. Is the tech world, I mean, we all sort of, as consumers, buy a laptop or buy a mobile phone. I mean, some people now tend to you know, take a phone on a contract or lease it, but is the industry moving towards that sort of sort of the holy grail of a circular approach which is actually you don't own the product, you rent the product or you lease the product or you sort of have hardware as a service? We've got software as a service now. Are we going to get hardware as a service? Is that happening? We definitely are, but we're, it's not happening very fast. There's a bit of market dynamics at play here. You've got a fairly small number of large, large IT providers. You know, the man- phone manufacturers, all sorts of device manufacturers, they are big ocean liners. Visualize them as you know, heading in a direction. They've become very, very efficient profit-making machines. They have a very clear manufacturing process. They have very clear ambitions about how short the life cycles are of their products. And they're, and they're just running that direction. And even though they know society's around them saying, we need to be greener, we need to be more sustainable, it's actually extremely difficult for them to move. Now, we can argue about ethics and how hard they should be trying, but it's very difficult for them to move. So there are open secondary markets that are buying and selling these things, and there's lots of small players trying to fill in those gaps to try and help them. Organizations like mine in Circularity First, we try and be more of a tugboat. So we're actually working with these big manufacturers just to try and help them pull the front of their ship a little bit around. Like, how can they build models that automatically include remanufactured technology? How do they work with us to launch sustainable hardware as a service and solutions like that, which is actually something we, we are, we've already launched and, and, and it's starting to get some traction and changing the dynamics. But it can't just be buy new equipment, put it on the lease and pretend that that's green because that's what some of it looks like. And, and that's changing the use model. But what happens afterwards? Well, sustainability thought about at the beginning. Did we think that they did they need all of that new technology? Did they think about how energy efficient that technology would be? Did they design it in a way that that could be reused effectively afterwards? Is there upgrade paths in there so they don't have to rip it all out in another three or four years' time? So what we're trying to do is enable that sustainability thinking all the way through a product like that. So actually what someone can get is a measurable, both from a carbon and a waste point of view solution, that shows they're being as efficient as they can be with that technology, that will last as long as possible, that they can upgrade it as they go, which are out ripping and replacing it all, and that someone's really thought about what to do with it at the end, which doesn't just mean putting it on the scrap heap. And does the right to repair help with that? Because I'm not sure where we are with the right to repair. Is it, is it in law in Europe yet, or is that, is that, gonna, is that gonna help? So the intent is right. The reality is slightly different. You know, as you rightly pointed out earlier, everything's getting smaller and smaller and more and more integrated. 
like I have a degree in computer science, replacing parts of my iPhone, not something that I would undertake. Extremely difficult. And even with the laws that are coming in, like like even the practicalities, like of moving things around or replacing them, the, the, the screws are so small, the, the components are so small, they're so sensitive. You know, not all of us have a, a proper static free environment to operate in. Like it's not trivial. So is it the right intent to make things more repairable and flexible? Yes. Um, are some companies like, have you heard of Fairphone like that? Are they, are they trying to build things and they're really trying to make it as easy as possible that you don't, you don't have to open up lots of things, you're just replacing a camera. So a camera's quite easy to pop in and pop out. Battery, quite easy to pop in and pop out. Is it possible? Yes. Have we really seen much change from that yet? Not really. One of the other things that the European government did was trying to standardize cables, which I get, you know, cables obviously can be very wasteful. You have lots of different cables. We'll have lots of cables kicking around our house from our devices, but actually all the carbon intensities in this thing. So it really does have to be in here. And actually forcing a cable choice means you get a little bit less innovation. You're forcing people to, to take a certain route to deliver a technology that may or may not long-term be the right thing. But look, we, we, we're seeing more and more legislation come out. Europe's just launched the CRSD, which is their big piece of legislation to force people to dis disclose. And this was big companies, by the way, to disclose on that. We've also seen the first carbon tax come into play. In fact, that started last week um, in that's the um, just a few weeks ago. So that's called the CBAM. That's the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, which is actually starting to tax people based on carbon. So legislation and law and tax will change behaviours. The right to repair, it's early days. I don't think that's really hit the straps yet in terms of changing behaviours. On this show, we're building a hall of fame for climate heroes. And we always ask our wonderful guests to leave something in First Mile's Climate Heroes Hall of Fame. So what or who would it be? I would put human ingenuity... We will find a way to to evolve and become more sustainable. We have to back ourselves that we will find those solutions if we, we actually just increase the intent and, and focus on it. Fantastic. That's great. Anthony, what, in your view, is the best book ever written on climate change? Or it can be a TV program, Netflix or film? Well, we've all probably seen Don't Look Up. So I think that's a, a great movie. Uh, unfortunately, scarily true. But but I think we need a new one that has a sort of positive ending. So where we do actually manage to, to lean into these challenges. I mean, you mentioned waste on the internet and where is all this waste on the internet? And I think we all live and breathe our lives through the internet. So actually, there's a very quietly presented book which really talks to that. It's called Worldwide Waste. And it's by Jerry McGovern. And, and, and that book actually really was one of the seeds that really opened my mind to, to seeing this everywhere from the downloads of Netflix itself, in fact, in downloading and watching Netflix has quite a big impact. So if you were to prime on that, you know, it's, it's, you've got to be interested in into it, but it's got a lot in there. Fantastic. I've not heard of that one. I should be getting that on World of Bucks with uh, hopefully a pre-used copy of it. And if people want to um, learn more from the sustainable, sustainable IT guy, uh, how do they find you to learn more? Well, there is the sustainable itk.com equally you can find me circularityverse or literally link with me on linkedin anthony levy um you'll, you'll find me easier easily enough um i'm we're very willing we open we share a lot of our research and a lot of the information that we found you know we're very happy to give that knowledge away and, and help people on their journey and what's coming what's coming up anthony that you're sort of most excited about in the next sort of uh, six 12 months well it's interesting you mentioned um hardware as a service so our sustainable as a hardware so stable hardware as a service um, product we've been trying behind the scenes and working with customers on is, is actually going live this month. 
Um, so actually, we're hoping to start changing the game for people there in terms of how they use and consume technology. Um, I've got quite some interesting engagements from an advisory point of view. We're actually helping technology companies become sustainably led. And that means this isn't an add-on. This isn't a secondary strategy. This is actually how do they... Um, differentiate their business how do they have commercial offerings how do they attract and retain the best talent how do they even get investment all the way through the lens of, of sustainability so it's hard-coded into their organization so it's not you know we've gone through this journey of everyone sort of nodding their head saying we should do something to actually fundamentally changing businesses and that's what really excites me fantastic i mean it's been absolutely fascinating because i thought we we're going to be talking about you know how to uh uh, remanufacture a server and it's actually a, a much more sort of integrated element of people's businesses and how that and and you know the trust and the meaning of it and businesses Anthony, it's been absolutely superb having you on first miles climate heroes thanks for coming on the show my pleasure bruce and good luck with everything going forward i'm bruce brightly and you've been listening to first miles climate heroes where we meet incredible people making an impact to tackle climate change. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and subscribe to the show. We have brand new episodes every Wednesday.